If you're here, if you want to join us for loving your LDS neighbor, we'd love to have you join us. This is the last uh, session. We've, this is uh, week seven of, uh, of the series. And so hopefully if you've been with us for the first uh, six weeks, uh, you've, you know, hopefully this has helped you uh, engage with your LDS uh, friends, family, uh, neighbors, um, the, the goal uh, of this, obviously, is we just want people to know the biblical Jesus. And so we, we say it all the time. We're, we're not trying to argue with people about theology. We're trying to introduce people to living water. And we believe that that's only found in the biblical Jesus. And so the most loving thing that you could do is to have this conversation with somebody who, who doesn't know the biblical Jesus. Now, whether that's whether that's your LDS friend, whether that's your atheist friend, whether that's your friend who uh, is a member of a different religion. And so I hope that what we've talked about in the last couple weeks has been helpful for you. Um, what we're going to do today is, is just kind of a recap. Uh, we're, the ministry that we're a part of, Ratio Christi, uh, we're, we talk about apologetics on college campuses. And apologetics just means to give a defense. So we give a defense for the historical, scientific, and philosophical evidence for Christianity on college campuses. But it's really helpful, we talked about this last week, uh, that statistically upwards of 70% of those who walk away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will go atheist agnostic. And so that's heartbreaking. Um, and I would say the evil one is happy either way, whether you believe in a, you know, a, a false religious gospel or whether you deny uh, the supernatural at all. I mean, the evil one's happy either way. So Number one, I would say it doesn't make, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, if you think about it logically, it doesn't make any sense that if you decide the truth claims of Joseph Smith were not true, that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist, and we, 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 there's tons and tons of good arguments for God's existence, but what the LDS have been taught their whole life is that, that if the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are not true, then nothing is true, and so we want to help them to see that we have to help them make that distinction between the teachings of Joseph Smith and the truth claims of the Bible to help them to see that just because they decided that the teachings of Joseph Smith are not true, they have to evaluate the evidence for biblical Christianity on its own terms. And so we want to help people to see that. Uh, and again, if you're, if you're LDS and you're here, we're just super grateful for you to come. I've been actually texting with a couple people who have listened to some of these um, and, and again, we're, we're not, again, we're not just trying to argue with theology with people. We're not just trying to uh, pick on people. We believe that the Bible is true, that what we just heard preached today, this is the, the word of the living God. And that, so that anything opposed to that is by definition false. And so we want to help you to come to know the true Jesus. And so that's where we're going to have to have hard conversations, but it's because we love you that we want to have these hard conversations. And so when we do... When we, when, we have it, when, we, when we do evangelism, we're not just trying to show people that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormonism, you know, if you're talking to members of the fundamentalist groups, is not true. We're trying to show them that biblical Christianity is true. And that will come up in these five topics. And that's what we've done over the last couple weeks is kind of hit on these topics. And what we want to look at today is the reliability of the Bible. And so the reason is because if we can trust the Bible then we can go to what the Bible says about all of these topics. We can go to what the Bible says about the gospel, what the Bible says about, about who God is and who Jesus is. And, and, these, and this is where this is our foundation for evangelical Christians. This is our foundation, which is not necessarily true 
what's not true for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, so uh, I didn't bring mine today, but I have a, I have a quad. Um, and so the, for, for the LDS, their standard works are the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine of the Covenants, the Pearl of Great, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Bible. So all of those are put together. If you have a quad, it's all of them together. There's some other stuff in there. Um, so they do believe the Bible is the Word of God, and they do have uh, reverence for the Bible, but it's, you know, the way that it kind of fleshes out, it's kind of the, lower, the lowest of the, of the four. Um, what's interesting is if you look at the Book of Mormon, lots of times when you're talking to missionaries, they'll tell you just read the Book of Mormon. The Book of the Mormon is the most um, Bible-like of all of the standard works. In fact, I would argue to you that um, you see this transition through Joseph Smith in his history where he was actually uh, a modal, modalistic um, you know, believes in one God, but sort of, but a modalistic view that we see in the in the, in the Book of Mormon, and then that transfers as he as he sort of starts developing his theology, which goes to pluralism, this idea that you could become God, that there's lots of gods, like we talked about last week. But one of the big issues for them is they do not believe the Bible was. They say translated correctly. So you see uh, First Nephi, for example, they would say that many plain and precious truths were taken out of the Bible, and their eighth articles of faith, the articles of faith in the Pearl of Great Price, the eighth article of faith says, we believe the Bible as far as it's been translated correctly. Now, there are LDS apologists that will actually have that argument about translated, but 95% of the people you talk to, they actually, what they really mean by that is transmitted correctly, and this is how they'll usually talk about it. Um, When you were little, you probably played the telephone game, right? And so they'll say, the, the problem with the Bible is that it's like, you know, the telephone game where someone, you know, if I, if I whisper something to, to someone up front and then we go all the way around the room, by the time it gets back to someone over here, it's all been changed. They'll say the Bible is like that. And so therefore, so some precious truths have been taken out and some things have been just lost in the translation. And so we actually can't know for lots of it, what it actually says. That's why we can't ultimately trust that as our foundation. But what I want to argue to you today in our last session together is that that's just not true, that, that actually the science of textual criticism tells us that we can be, we can, we can be almost certain, and I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll walk you through it in a second, that we actually have what they wrote, that we have what the apostles wrote. Now, that doesn't in and of itself make it true. Okay? So in any work from antiquity, the first question you want to ask is, do we have what they wrote? And then secondly, is what they wrote true? Now, we're going to hit on that just at the, at the end here, but we're just talking about today, do we have what they wrote? Because obviously, if we don't have what they wrote, then you know, we, we can't really go, that can't be our foundation. But if this is what the apostles wrote, this can be our foundation. There are other tests to determine if it is true. Now a lot of times, now this is a, a lot of times they'll, when they talk about translation, maybe even we do this. They'll say, "Well, see, it was translated, you know, all these different languages, and so when you translate from different languages, you lose meaning, and then finally, when you get to English, then it's lost all its meaning." The reality is that's not how textual transmission works. If you have a Bible, so the, the ESV um, Bible that's in the, the pews here. That was translated from the New Testament. We're going to focus on the New Testament today. And there's reasons we could, we could do the same thing with the Old Testament. We're going to focus on the New Testament today. But that was translated from the Greek manuscripts. 
So it's Greek to English. It's not going through all these other languages. So this idea that you're losing every time. Now, when you go from Greek to English, it's hard because it's not a one-for-one correspondence in language. But we're not going through all these different languages and somehow we've lost elements of what's in there. And that's really important to understand. But, so the question is, when we look at any work from antiquity, and the New Testament is... Now, the New Testament is not one document. You know, 27 different documents, 27 different scrolls. Vellum, papyri, written on, um, nine or ten different authors, depending on who wrote Hebrews, there's debate on that, written over about a 20 to 50 year period. And then the individual books are then compiled into what we, you know, the New Testament, and then together with the Old Testament into the Bible. So the New Testament is actually not one source, but a collection of sources. Now, this is really helpful for us when we're looking at evidence for the resurrection, because we can compile and put together all these independent eyewitness testimony for evidence for the resurrection. Now, we're not going to do that today, but that's actually very helpful for us when we're having these conversations. Now, it's true, maybe this is shocking for some of you, we do not have any of the originals of any of the New Testament documents. Now, sometimes when we tell our students that, they, they start freaking out. Because if, it sounds like if we don't have the originals, then this is the whole point. We can't know what the original, we can't know what the original said. And people like Bart Ehrman take that position. Because we don't have the originals, he would say, it's probable that we don't know what they wrote. And I would just argue to you that's just logically not consistent, and I'll show you today that actually I think there's actually good reason to believe, um, we'll talk about this maybe at the end, why God would do it this way, but I think there's some, actually some reasons why God would not even want to preserve the originals. But in any, in any, when we're doing textual criticism, again, the science of textual criticism is just how do, I, how do we look at, how do we try to recreate um, or, or come to understand do we have the originals of any work from antiquity? We do not have the autographs. So the originals were called autographs. So if you're asking for somebody's autograph, that's your, the original, right? The autographs. So when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul, if I had a scribe, write it for him. But, you know, it was written. And then if someone wanted a copy, they couldn't just go, you know, Paul didn't self-publish it on Amazon and just print off 8,000 copies and put them in the back and you could pick up a cup for, you know, for five bucks, right? So if you wanted a copy, what would you have to do? You have to, someone would have to copy it. This, you, had, you had scribes that would copy the letter. And then if they wanted a copy, they would. So what you have is copies of copies of copies of copies. And these are called the manuscripts. And so for any work from antiquity, any work from antiquity, what you want is you want lots and lots and lots of copies. And ideally, you want copies that are earlier, that are closer to the originals. Because that's less time for uh, corruption to come in. Now, it's not always the case that earlier copies are better. But ideally, you want lots of copies and you want early copies. And what we find with the New Testament, this is amazing, you study this, the New Testament is better supported than the next 10 best works from antiquity combined. If you don't think that the New Testament, that we can know what the original, that we have the original New Testament, then you don't think we can have that for any work from antiquity. And I'll show you here in a second, because it's amazing the evidence we have for the New Testament. So, um, my thing just died. Oh, there we go. Um, so, again, you have people like Frederick Kenyon. It cannot be true, too strongly asserted that in substance, the text of the Bible is certain, especially in the case of the New Testament. Again, I'm going to focus on the New Testament today. So, what do we have? So, with the New Testament, we have earlier manuscripts than any other work from antiquity. We have more manuscripts. We have more accurately copied manuscripts. And we have more abundantly supported manuscripts than any other work from antiquity. And we'll show you here how we get to that. So, this is a, a chart. I know the chart is it's hard to see. But, what, but this is talking about what we want is earlier manuscripts, okay? So, in the, what you want here is you want the bars to be low, 
Now notice to the left, you have the Greek, new, uh, so the, the original was written in Greek and we have Greek manuscripts and then we have manuscripts in all other languages. So not all the manuscripts are complete copies. Some of them are just fragments. So for instance, the earliest uh, uh, fragment of the Gospel of John we have, the John Rylands fragment, is just a little fragment. But you have some fragments and then you have some complete copies. So the earliest of the complete New Testament we have is, is about 225 AD, but you see that the earliest fragments are within 25 years. Now compare that to all these other works from antiquity. Homer's Odyssey, right, what is that? It's like 1,500 years from the original to when we have the complete manuscript. Now, we, everyone agrees there were manuscripts in between them. It's just that they've been lost to history. They're written on vellum and papyrus, and these things got used up, and we just they've lost. But what we're finding is we're finding more and more manuscripts all the time, and it's amazing. Now, in this, this is the number of manuscripts. So here you want, the, you want the, the, the chart to be high. So for the Greek New Testament manuscripts, about 5,000, or sorry, about 6,000, about 1,500 Greek New Testament manuscripts, almost 25,000 manuscripts in total. Now, you compare that to every other work from antiquity. Second is Homer's Iliad, 1,900. But look at that for... Um, Tacitus, we have 36 manuscripts. For uh, Josephus, 55 manuscripts. Compare that to the New Testament. It's like, it's, it's almost not fair. It's like the Old Testament, we're, I mean, the New Testament, we're piling on, and we have so many copies. Now, the, now I want to show you why does that matter? Why is that helpful? Because, again, the more copies we have, the better we can recreate the original. So, again, New Testament, about 6,000 handwritten Greek manuscripts over 18,000 manuscripts in other languages. Now, again, some of them are complete. Some of them are just fragments. Again, the next closest is Homer's uh, Iliad. The John Ryland fragment, I mentioned that. The earliest undisputed manuscript, right, is dated to about 117 to 138 AD. But there are others. In fact, uh, they just discovered a fragment of the Gospel of Mark that some people put into the first century. But there are others, um, included some found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that, put, that have fragments that date between 50 and 70 AD. This is the New Testament. So we're talking within the first century. And, and we're finding more and more all the time. Now, most of the New Testament, including all of the, the Gospels, survive from about A.D. 250. In fact, the Codex, we call the Codex Vaticanus, uh, is the entire New Testament from about 325. There are other complete manuscripts um, that we can probably date those to families of manuscripts that go to about A.D. 100 to 150. Now, let's just say that we didn't have any of that. I mean, we have an amazing amount of evidence. Let's say we had none of that. So this is Diocletian. He was a Roman emperor in the uh, third century, not a fan of Christianity, to say the least. He wanted all Bibles burned. He wanted all Bibles destroyed. Let's say that Diocletian was successful in getting all of those manuscripts. Now, again, what we see is, what's amazing is you see the manuscripts were then spread all over the known world. So someone would make copies and copies, and they would spread about all over the known world. Let's just say he was able to somehow do that, which would be almost impossible. Let's say he was able to do that. We could actually recreate the entire New Testament just from quotations from the early church fathers. So this is another level of evidence of have that we can demonstrate that we have what the authors wrote. We have the manuscript evidence, but even if we didn't have that, we could recreate the entire New Testament just from the quotes from the early church fathers. Now, this is, how does all of this work? So we don't have the original, okay? So we don't have the original. 
Now, we have is copies, copies and copies of copies. Now, do you see there, let's, let's just say you're trying to figure out what the original said. In copy one, you see there's an error in the second word. When you start comparing all the manuscripts, copy two, copy three, copy four, you see there's different errors in all of these. But when you compare all of the manuscripts, all of the copies, does anybody have any doubt what the original said? Right? No, the original said God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how you do textual criticism. So if you take, so the problem with the telephone game, the problem with the telephone game is it implies that what everyone does is it just says their word and then that's it. The more accurate understanding of how this actually works is if everybody then wrote it down and then turned over what they wrote and then we could look at it and we'd say, oh, here was the problem. You said this here, and oh, you said this here. You said, and then we could compare all that, and we could say, oh, now we know what the original said. That is actually how textual criticism works. So the telephone game, this, and you can lovingly help your LDS friends see this, is a terrible example of how we come to understand how we got the text. It's just not true. What we have is we have copies of copies of copies that we can look at, and we can recreate the original with almost certainty. And I'll show you that here in a second. So just, so why would, is it possible, let me say this way, this is speculation, so you want to be careful. Why would God not want, potentially, if God, God's sovereign, if God wanted to preserve the original, he could. I think maybe two reasons. One, if we had the original, what do you think people would do with the original? Probably worship it. Because that's what we do, right? <laughs> they would worship it. We're not worship, we don't worship the Bible, right? We worship God, and the Bible helps us understand God. But secondly... If we had the original and it was in the hands of certain people that didn't want certain things to be in there, potentially they could mess with it. And they could say, see, the original says this. Now, I'm not saying they could just white out a bunch of stuff and just change it. I don't know how you would do it. But I'm just saying potentially that's a problem. But instead, if we don't have the original but we have all of these copies and we can actually recreate the original, you could be the way in which God... Um, protects the transmission of the text, protects the original even better than if we just had the original. Now, skeptics will say this. So this is, this is uh, people like uh, Bart Ehrman, who used to teach at, the, teach at the University of North Carolina. He would say, with all, with all of these manuscripts, there's, there's all these errors. There's over 200,000 errors in the Bible. There's more errors in the Bible than there are words in the Bible. And that sounds good rhetorically, the problem is, when we talk about errors, we're not talking about errors. But the better understanding in textual criticism, you know, in the science of textual criticism, is variance. So they're not, these are variants, and almost all of them, the vast majority of these in the textual, in the manuscripts, are grammatical errors, spelling errors. And they're spread out through all of the documents. So if you have these errors spread out through all of these almost 6,000 manuscripts. So, so Westcott and Hort, these are the... Um, the guys that started that put together the, the NIV, when they were doing this, this was hundreds, this is a hundred and some years ago, they said that only one in 60 variants had any significance. If that's true, that would leave the text at 98.3% pure. Bruce Metzger, who actually taught Bart Ehrman, he's actually his mentor, Bart Ehrman dedicated his first book, Misquoting Jesus, to Metzger, which is weird. But Metzger is, you know, he's, and he's an evangelical Christian. He says the text is 99.5% accurate. And the, the 0.5% in question, it doesn't affect a single doctrine of the Christian faith. No, no one's hiding this from you. If you pull out your Bible right now, just if you want, pull out the pew copy right now, and you turn to the, the woman caught in adultery, 
the tale of the one caught in adultery in, in John 7 and 8, 11. If you turn to it, and you'll, you'll say, it'll tell you right there that the earliest manuscript copies we have don't have this in there. If you look at the long ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, again, look at it will tell you the earliest manuscript we co copies we have don't have this in there. So does that mean it's not in the original? There are some people that take the position that it wasn't in the original. I, I don't. I just say maybe because we could develop, we could find more copies later on that actually could explain this. So they could explain, they could say, oh, no, it was taken out and the earlier copies could find it in there. You just want to be careful. You don't want to build your theology on something that's just here. So, for instance, Mark 16, 18. Does anybody know what that talks about? about handling snakes and drinking poison. There are, I come from southwest Virginia, and there are people in the Appalachian Mountains which, again, they, they, that, that handle copperhead snakes and drink strychnine. Now, these are faithful, I think, faithful brothers and sisters who are just trying to do what the Bible says. The problem is, most likely, that wasn't in the original. So I want to be careful. I don't see that anywhere else in Scripture, so I want to be careful about making that a practice within my church, right? I want to, I want to be I want to think well about the most important things. But let's say you take the woman called adultery out. Have you lost anything? Have we lost any? No. That's how we expect Jesus would have acted. But if we take it out, we haven't lost any theology. We take the long ending of Mark out, we haven't lost anything. So in, all, in these areas where there is some doubt, we actually don't lose any theology. And so again, if this is true, we can actually know that we have what they wrote it. And I'll just, Bart Ehrman, this is it. If you want to study Bart Ehrman, you, you, Bart Ehrman actually tells you this in his book. He said this, because a lot of people, the LDS, it's interesting, the LDS will quote Bart Ehrman a lot to me or to other people, undermining the Bible while they're also upholding the Bible. It's, 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 it's interesting. But Bart Ehrman says this is not the reason he left the faith. He was a Christian who walked away. This is not the reason. He actually tells us, he wrote a book called God's Big Problem, and he says that the problem he can't get over, he actually went through a pretty bad divorce and some other things. He actually, it's the problem of evil. So even with all of this understanding of textual criticism, this is not the big problem for him. But also philosophically, he has, his position, it's a philosophical issue with the text, not the text. He says, because we don't have the original, it's possible that what we have is not, is, is not what they wrote. Therefore, it's probable. And I, I mean, when we study logic, I would just tell you that's just... That its possibility does not equal probability. In fact, with all the evidence we just talked about and more, we can actually know that, pro that with probability, we have exactly what they wrote. So uh, someone like um, Dan Wallace, who's an expert on textual criticism, if you want to go deeper into this, read da uh, Daniel Wallace's stuff. He just says, I don't think that uh, Ehrman has actually challenged his biases. I think he has fed them. So, all right, so, that just, so if that's true, then we do have an accurate copy. And that means when we go to the text, we can actually, what does the text say? That's actually what God wanted to be there. And so we can actually do Bible studies with our friends and we can take them to the text and say, this is what it says. This is the gospel that's preached. So we can challenge them and say, this is what the Bible says this, you say this. We stand on the Bible because we have what they wrote. And again, you can go deeper and you can look at, do we have evidence and these other, so again, you know, do the original New Testament documents tell the truth? Yes. And there's all kinds of, of evidence for that. And we can have, give, give good evidence that, that Jesus rose from the dead and all the things that we've been re listening, you know, and hearing about, say, even in 1 Corinthians is true. And it's amazing. But all right, so I know, so as we sum up and as we close, um, you know, the last seven weeks, let me just give you two, two or three things to think about. We, we're not, again, we're not just trying to argue with people. The most loving thing you can do, if you, if you have been transformed by Jesus, if, if you have been 
recognize that I'm a sinner and I deserve separation from him and yet I have salvation, I have eternal life because of what he accomplished for me on the cross and I can walk, that's amazing and I want other people to know that. So I'm not just trying to argue with them but I also am helping them, trying to help them to see that we both can't be right because we teach different gospel and so it, it, we teach different gospels and so we are standing on the biblical gospel because we think we can trust the Bible and the Bible, that's what the Bible says. And remember, we want to find out where they are. We want to ask them lots of questions appropriate to them. You know, again, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? These are all really important questions. You want to, you want to focus on these topics that we've spent the last six weeks, seven weeks looking at. Focus on these topics. Don't get, don't get sidetracked on all of these topics that are easy to go down, but don't really, I don't think have any real eternal value. But again, we're not just trying to show them that what they believe is false. We're trying to show them that Christianity is true. And so as we close, I mean, this is what we want to, we have been gripped by the gospel, our family. And so we've, we've moved down to Utah County. And, and so this is actually a, a Christian study center at the University of Florida. We want to, we want to start something like this in Provo as a way to have these conversations with a mini biblical archaeology museum there where we can show you can trust the Bible. And then we can talk about God's nature. We can talk about the gospel. And we want to have a chapter, we've got a chapter at UVU and, and we want to, um, we want to see a, a, a gospel-preaching church planted in Utah County. And, and it's, again, it's not just arguing with people. It's not just theology. But it's not less than that. It's, it's right thinking and then loving God and loving people. And so maybe, you know, maybe that some of you would be interested in, in supporting us in that. And you know, I'd love to talk to you more about that. But what we wanted to do for the last, if you want to take a, a picture of this, you can e- you know, send me a message. And I'd love to chat with you more about what we're doing. And maybe God's calling some of you to come down there with us. But what I want to do for the last five minutes, okay, I, I want to just give us a chance to pray together. Because I mean, obviously, we talked a lot about you know, information. But you know, these are spiritual battles. And so if you ever listen to the song God of the City, that was actually written by uh, a Christian um, worship band who had an opportunity to go to um, Bangkok, Thailand on a mission trip. And the, one of the lead singers of, of, the, of the worship band, he was sitting there and he was, he was looking out over, it's, it's the capital of sex tourism in, in the world, uh, just horrible things that are happening there. And he's looking out over the city and he said, God, you're still the God of this city. Even though it feels like it's not, nothing's, it feels like you're far from, you're still the God of the city. And I think the same thing about Utah County. I just saw the recent statistics. 89% of Utah County is LDS. But God's still the God of that county and of that city and of those people. And so what I want to do is just brief, just, I want just, we're going to have that song just pre- playing in the background. Would you just, you know, get together in twos or threes or twelves, whatever you want to do. Uh, and would you just pray here? Um, so a couple things to pray about. Would you pray for your own hearts? They would be broken for the lost. Would you pray for those that you know that don't know the biblical gospel, that God would put you in conversation with them? Would you pray that your identity would be so complete in Christ that you would have the courage to get up to bat and have these conversations? Would you pray for Utah County and Provo and Springville and Orem? And then for our family, would you pray for our, we're raising financial support? Would you pray that we would have a, gospel, a faithful gospel-proclaiming church in the Provo-Orem area, that we'd see this come to, to, to fruition, and that maybe even some of you would would want to come and be on mission with us in Utah County. So if we would, uh, we could turn that on and then we're just going to, we're just going to take five minutes. We'll just break up in groups and pray. And here's some prompts. You can have that, um, you know, playing. Uh, if, uh, yeah, we just pray for five minutes and then I'll close us in prayer. <laughs>